This is part two of the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, a mathematics genius and Harvard grad who turned into a hateful hermit in the Montana woods and became a serial bomber. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, you can leave a rating on Spotify or iTunes, or you can become a Patreon member and get bonus stuff every month, or you can buy a True Crime Cam sticker that I designed myself while supplies last. The link is in the description. Anyways, when we left off, you already heard about bombs 1 through 11. You heard about the abusive experiment Kaczynski participated in for three years that was psychologically terrifying. You heard about his brief desire to transition into a woman that didn't go as he suspected and left him angry and resentful and wanting to kill the psychiatrist that he met with. And you heard about his obsession with a French writer's book, The Technological Society, which could have been Ted's introduction into a strong distaste and critique for technology, or at least this author just wrote everything down that Ted had already been thinking about for a long time, and it really inspired him. And now, in part two, Ted Kaczynski is 27 years old and has just quit his teaching job at the University of California, Berkeley to isolate himself further from society. Let's get into it. In the summer of 1969, Ted Kaczynski was freshly unemployed and sitting on a generous amount of savings. Now the plan was to find some decent land where he could start living a life much closer to nature and much further from society. Ted always had a deep respect for the outdoors that was probably fueled by his own father, who took him and David on camping trips and taught them how to hunt. Because Ted's land search was coming up short, he had to pick up a job and move back into his parents' home in Chicago. They immediately noticed a change in his demeanor. Ted was always a sort of loner, but now it was extremely apparent that something was going on. To top it off, Ted packed up his belongings and left one day, only leaving behind a note that concerned his parents, who believed it may have been a suicide note. Ted wrote that they were the best parents in the world and that he was sorry if he had disappointed them. To his parents' relief, Ted had actually just traveled to Great Falls, Montana, to propose a plan to his brother. His big idea was using both of their savings to buy some property out in the wilderness and live on it. Eventually, they found a 1.4-acre plot off a logging road six miles from Lincoln, a town of just a thousand residents. The brothers agreed to split the cost, $2,100. By 1971, Ted and David had constructed a 10-by-12-foot one-room cabin with a small loft. It had no running water or electricity, no toilet, no plumbing, no water well, no sewage, no telephone just a small wood-burning stove to keep the place warm for winter. Ted Kaczynski continued to keep to himself and only interacted with the few locals in town when he needed supplies. A beat-up bicycle became his main mode of transportation, given to him by a local deputy sheriff. This is a New York Times article in which residents were interviewed about Ted's daily life. Shaggy-bearded and eccentric, Mr. Kaczynski passed almost unnoticed in this rugged mountain town of loggers, ranchers, and outdoor enthusiasts, many of whom get by on odd jobs, like trapping and guiding snowmobile tours. The owner of the Blackfoot Market, where Kaczynski sometimes stopped for cans of spam, tuna, and packets of stone-ground flour, stated, He's not the only recluse we have who is strange. There are people stranger than him. End quote. Ted managed to develop a sustainable garden where he grew root vegetables, carrots, potatoes, and parsnips. Chicken wire surrounded this, but rabbits still managed to climb through and eat his produce. 
Because Ted didn't have his own vehicle, the man who delivered his mail would sometimes give Ted a ride to town in his truck, especially during the winter months. Every fall, Ted would return the favor by dropping him off a bag of parsnips. The only thing Ted talked to him about was the fact that deer and rabbit were eating his crops, which was a huge deal for Ted because he was trying to live completely off-grid in a place with a short crop season, limited to root plants. One local said he was literally at war with the rabbits, and the rabbits were gaining. Only a handful of people were allowed to actually see his tiny cabin in the wild with their own eyes, one of them being a census worker who described the place as having a bed with rumpled covers, two chairs, a small table, a few trunks, a nail on the back of the door from which to hang a coat, lots of books, a Coleman gas stove, a rough grill for outdoor cooking set on bricks and rocks, and an axe for chopping wood. He'd use the grill to skin and barbecue squirrel, rabbits, and porcupines. Ted's desire to be free from society's constraints was actually so extreme, he refused to buy a clock or purchase a watch. When he absolutely needed to know what day it was, he relied on his neighbors down the road. They recalled, quote, There was an instance when he was going to visit his brother a week later and wanted us to let him know when Thursday had come so he could catch his bus. When the neighbors asked why he was going to visit his brother, Ted said it was none of their business. The neighbors said that they were just curious, to which Ted answered, curiosity killed the cat. On another occasion, the town's pastor spotted him sitting on the post office floor, sifting through junk mail other residents had thrown away. The pastor recalled, quote, he was just sitting there flat on the floor, propping himself up against the wall, with those piles around him like a large horseshoe. He was going out of his way to make sure each stack was nice and neat, and that all the edges were straight. Then he gently put all the piles in his knapsack. End quote. Ted was a familiar face to library employees, who saved newspapers and magazines like Scientific American and Omni for him. He also made special orders for classic literature, most of them out of print, and hard to get. While Kaczynski continued his reclusive lifestyle, his brother stayed in Great Falls for some time before eventually returning to Chicago during the summer of 1972. David was on great terms with his brother, but something Ted told him the day he left made him think otherwise. Quote, Well, I might never see you again. If you ever need to get a hold of me urgently, send me a letter and put a red circle around the return address and I'll know it's important. David was confused about this statement and expressed his desire to keep in contact with his brother, which would ultimately happen. This contact would continue for a number of years, but eventually it would stop. According to the Washington Post, Ted's father visited him numerous times and, quote, admired his son's woodmanship, his ability to build a lean-to, his talent at knowing from the look of sap which branches would burn well. So this cabin wasn't like a secret to the family. His family knew he was living out alone in the wilderness, but the interactions with his family was getting less and less. He was further isolating himself. And we're going to jump ahead pretty far just for a moment, just to get it out there. In 1990, Turk Kaczynski, Ted's father, was diagnosed with lung cancer, and tumors were found on his back. He held a family meeting to discuss the future, which Ted did not attend. In October of that year, Turk shot himself with a 22 caliber rifle inside his home. It's unknown how his father's suicide impacted Ted, but by that point, Ted had already mailed numerous deadly bombs. So back to the early to mid-70s where we were. This tiny makeshift cabin would be Ted Kaczynski's main residence for the next 20-plus years. 
When he ran out of money or his family failed to send him a check, Ted would travel to major cities and pick up odd jobs, like in the fall of 1974, when he worked as a gas station clerk in Montana for three weeks before abruptly quitting. In January the following year, he traveled to Oakland, California and stayed for three months. However, it's unknown what he was doing and why he was there. Kaczynski's serial bombings began in May of 1978, when he targeted a Northwestern University professor in Illinois. Within two weeks of mailing bomb number one, Ted temporarily moved back into his parents' home near Chicago and began working at a foam-making plant. This is where David was a foreman and their father managed the plant. Ted probably obtained this job only because of his family's position at the plant, but it didn't save him from being fired a short time later for his strange behavior. But before leaving this position, though, he took a supervisor at the plant on a few dates, which would be unremarkable for the average person, but for Ted, it was life-changing. And Whale, the author of Hunting the Unabomber, interviewed FBI Special Agent Kathy Puckett, who described a journal entry in which Ted wrote about these dates, which suggests that this was one of Ted's few intimate interactions with a woman. And this is a quote from Kathy Puckett, the FBI agent. He writes about how she kissed him, and he described it like a Martian meeting an earthling. He said she was doing something with her tongue that he couldn't quite understand. He had never kissed another woman in his life, because if he had, he would have written it down. She explained, noting the incident appeared to perplex him. It was almost as if he was a third-party observer, watching the two kiss on a movie set, rather than something he was doing in real life. The woman's lack of interest in pursuing a romantic relationship angered Kaczynski. And this woman's brother would later tell the New York Times that while Ted may have fantasized their relationship into something more, it had been strictly platonic in nature. According to people at the filmmaking company, Ted wrote an insulting limerick about the woman shortly after their outing, made copies of it, and pasted them on the walls of the factory for all to see. Although he hadn't signed this riddle, another supervisor quickly figured out that Ted was the culprit and admonished him to take the offending poetry down. Instead, he wrote another limerick and taped it to the wall by the second supervisor's workstation. Not long after, Ted was let go. Before I go into the rest of Whale's writing, I wanted to let y'all know that when I was reading David Kaczynski's book that he's written, which I'll bring up later, it made it clear that he was the second supervisor that had this note taped to his workstation. So Ted was not only mocking this woman for not wanting to engage in a romantic relationship, he was also mocking his brother, who told him to stop, basically. So it wasn't in Whale's book, but I figured that out because of David Kaczynski's book, just so you know. So on to Whale's writing, Puckett noted several other failed interactions Ted had journaled about. Long, agonizing passages about how he had a crush on a girl who worked at a gas station in Montana, and he bought a new pair of jeans in an effort to walk up to her, and he ended up sobbing in front of his campfire because he couldn't bring up the nerve to talk to her. In another instance, Ted traveled back to Berkeley where he tried to join the Sierra Club's singles group, and the FBI agent says, He goes on a hike and is trying to talk to people, and he writes about this beautiful woman, but he couldn't talk to her. He couldn't make the connection. End quote. So even when Ted Kaczynski did have these brief dips into society and, I guess, attempted to develop some sort of connection with people, he struggled and he didn't even have the confidence to even approach women he was interested in. By late fall, Ted had returned to his Montana cabin in the woods, his home base, 
for the next 20 plus years. And in May of the following year, he would target Northwestern University again with bomb number two. From 1978 to 1985, Kaczynski mailed and or placed 11 bombs, killing one person and injuring 20 others, all of which occurred while Ted maintained contact with his family. After the murder of Hugh Scruton, this is what Kaczynski wrote in his journal. Experiment 97, December 11th, 1985. I planted a bomb disguised to look like a scrap of lumber behind Ren Tech Computer Store in Sacramento. According to the San Francisco Examiner, the operator, owner, manager, was killed. Blown to bits. Excellent. Humane way to eliminate somebody. He probably never felt a thing. $25,000 reward offered. Rather flattering. End quote. Ted's increasing hostility towards society and the way it functioned didn't go unnoticed by his family. His brother recalled a growing sense of rage in Ted's letters. With Ted, I have a sense of a person who appeared to deteriorate with time. I recall letters he wrote to our parents that were quite loving for quite a few years. How he get from that to some of the angry letters, I don't know. He had told me on a number of occasions that Lincoln was getting too crowded. He felt stifled. I understand perfectly how he felt. A cabin coming up two miles away. It changes your lifestyle. Someone could look at you through binoculars, especially when your bathroom is outside. It could be a concern. End quote. In 1986, the year after Kaczynski's first fatal bomb, David visited his brother for nearly two weeks. He slept outside in a tent, though, because he felt the cabin was too cramped. A Washington Post article states, quote, David saw no chemicals or other items that might have aroused suspicion. In retrospect, David said, he wanted to be very specific about the day I was coming. One day, Ted showed him a book on Roman coins. Another day, David drove him to town to shop for supplies and go to the library. He introduced me to people that he knew, David said. I remember feeling pleased and reassured that he was a familiar character in town. Back in the cabin, Ted spent some time tutoring me in Spanish, David said. He would have me read from some of the Spanish books. I had a sense that he really enjoyed doing that. David said he did not relish the role, but went along with it because it seemed to please his brother. It was on this visit, David recalled, that the table collapsed under him as he was sawing wood outside. Ted touched his shoulders, and David felt a closeness to his brother greater than any he could remember. End quote. So now you know who the Unabomber is and the details of his first 11 serial bombings. At this point, Ted Kaczynski is still a ghost to authorities, but everything changed with bomb number 12 on February 20th, 1987. The Los Angeles Times wrote about the explosion, titling it, One Man Bombing Spree Leaves FBI, Victims Baffled. It was Gary Wright's turn to be the victim of a random curse, Wright a 26-year-old employee of a small computer sales and service company a couple miles from Utah's capital just happened to pick up a burlap bag in the parking lot behind the store. Inside the bag was a homemade pipe bomb, prepared to detonate at the touch. It exploded. Wright wound up spending the weekend in the hospital, being treated for arm, leg, and face cuts, and wondering why he, of all people, became a victim. For years, a lot of people have asked the same question after their lives were blown apart by a baffling one-man string of bombings that has stretched across the country since 1978. End quote. Bomb number 12 drastically changed the course of this investigation because for the first time ever, the FBI had a witness. 
Tammy Fluey locked eyes with the Unabomber through the window of her office. She described him as a slender, white man, aged 25 to 30, about 6 feet tall, with a ruddy complexion, light mustache, and curly reddish-blonde hair. Tammy observed Kaczynski walking between cars in the back parking lot, believing at first he could be playing some sort of prank, then fearing the man might be breaking into cars. She called her boss, Gay Wright, and they both watched as this stranger placed something next to Tammy's front left tire. Tammy almost went out to confront Ted Kaczynski before Miss Wright stopped her, saying her son Gary would arrive shortly and could remove it. A short time later, Gary arrived back to the office and parked right beside Tammy's car, also noticing the strange object beside her tire. He walked over to remove what looked like a road hazard when it detonated, sending 200 pieces of shrapnel into his face and body and permanently severing a nerve in his wrist. Tammy's eyewitness account to authorities resulted in a now-infamous FBI sketch of the Unabomber, showing a gray hood pulled over his head, large aviator sunglasses, and a very, very thin mustache. This sketch was released at a press conference three days later. Ted Kaczynski's mistake would cause him to go into hiding and halt his bombing spree for the next six years. He continued to receive letters and cash from his parents and brother, but Ted also stumbled into a new friendship with someone he'd never meet. In Robert McFadden's article, Prisoner of Rage for the New York Times, he described this unusual relationship. That autumn, he received an unusual letter in Spanish from Ojanaga, Mexico, from Juan Sanchez Erolia, who introduced himself as a friend of his brother. He said he had been hurt in a pickup truck accident and asked for financial help. In a meticulous handwritten response in stilted Spanish, on lined three-ring binder paper, dated November 14, 1988, Mr. Kaczynski said he would try to help, though he made no promises. He wrote, I am pleased that you call yourself my friend, and I, in turn, call myself your friend. Thus began a correspondence, an odd blend of warmth yet distant formality, sometimes associated with communications across a linguistic or cultural gap between Teodoro, which I guess is Theodore in Spanish, I'm not sure, and a married six-year-old farmhand with two years of schooling. They would eventually write some 50 letters each, and Mr. Kaczynski would offer a circumspect picture of his life, from mundane weather reports to detailed descriptions of rabbit hunting, from expressions of concern over his property to confessions of loneliness. David recalled, quote, Ted said he didn't know what it was, but Juan touched him very deeply, and there are a number of instances throughout Ted's life when he was very, very deeply touched and sympathetic towards someone's pain he could understand, and Juan was one of those cases. David said Ted wanted to do something for Mr. Sanchez, but his solution reveals that in some ways he was out of touch. He read about a millionaire who would receive requests for money and decide who to give it to. Ted decided this way was the best way, to get help for Juan, to pay his medical bills, and he drafted a letter that he sent to me. I was supposed to get an okay from Juan and send it to the millionaire. And, of course, we never heard. For an intelligent person, it seemed so extremely naive. End quote. So Sanchez continued writing both Kaczynski brothers, and at one point, David brings up a woman named Linda Patrick. The way this Washington Post journalist writes this part is a little confusing, but I'm pretty sure this woman was David's lab partner and friend in high school, but they had lost touch, I guess. So David brings up Linda and how much he admired her, and Sanchez says David should reach out to her again. But Linda was actually in another relationship at the time. So, Sanchez helped David craft a love letter to woo her, and it worked. 
By the following year, David planned on moving to Schenectady, New York to marry her. I hope I pronounced that right. I looked it up, but who knows if that person was right. Anyways, usually when someone in your family gets married, you feel happy for them. Unless they're marrying a horrible person, of course. But Linda was an incredible woman, and Ted felt betrayed by his brother David, even though he had never actually met her and only heard good things about Linda. David recalled, quote, At that time, he decided to end his relationship with me and communicating with me. It was an extremely angry, total surprise to me. He tended to view me as someone who was easily manipulated by others, and for some reason he had gotten the notion that Linda was a manipulating female who was using me. It may have just been terrible for him to think I would rejoin society. I think it goes deeper than that. End quote. Ted also claimed he had developed a heart arrhythmia that made him fear for his life, and that his correspondence with David was triggering his stress. David stated, quote, My readings of things is that Ted did not have a real good grip on his own emotions, and this was clearly an example of an effect, the way his emotions became something he could not control. Clearly, he was afraid of the way his heart would beat when he got angry. He couldn't control it. The only way he could control it was by eliminating the trigger. The only way was, don't write me anymore. Don't make me angry anymore. End quote. From that point on, Ted completely cut his brother off and stated he would only open letters if there was a family emergency. He continued to write Sanchez, expressing that he felt alienated from his family and that he was on bad terms with his parents. After his father was diagnosed with lung cancer, Ted did make a brief call back home from the local post office. Within a year, his father had committed suicide. Ted didn't attend the memorial service in Illinois, but called his mother during it to express his condolences. After the funeral, Wanda wrote Ted and invited him to talk about things that had been painful during his childhood and their relationship. Basically, she was trying to reconnect with him and sort things out. It's her son, after all. Ted's response was an 18-page letter accusing his parents of, quote, being more interested in having a brilliant son than seeing that son happy and fulfilled. He also wrote about a painful memory in gym class when he was 16 years old. All the kids had picked their teams and Ted was the odd man out that no one wanted. Ted wrote, I'm crying as I write this. Wanda wrote back, look, Ted, you know you're handsome. You know you're smart. There's no reason you can't have the kind of life you want. To David Kaczynski, he saw his mother's words as encouraging towards Ted, but this letter from his mother only angered Ted even more. He took it as an insult and confirmation that his mother believed he'd failed at life. In 1991, Ted didn't attend David and Linda's wedding, and this ceremony was kind of the last straw for Ted. He stopped writing his brother at all, unless it was to ask for financial support. Jump ahead two years later in the summer of 1993, Kaczynski resumed his serial bombing campaign after a six-year hiatus. On June 22nd, a package arrived at the home of Dr. Charles Epstein, a geneticist at the University of California, San Francisco. His teenage daughter brought the package inside, placing it on the kitchen counter before departing. The San Francisco Examiner printed the story on its front page the following day. About 4.30 p.m., Epstein opened the package and it exploded. The explosion blew out the kitchen windows and screens, ripped a tabletop off its legs, and scattered glass about the kitchen. The doctor lost two or three fingers on his right hand and suffered abdominal injuries as well as a broken right arm. At this point, the Unabom Task Force, composed of agents in the FBI, ATF, and U.S. Postal Service, was offering a $60,000 reward for this serial bomber's apprehension. 
Just two days later, 38-year-old David Gorenter, a computer scientist at Yale University, was alone in his campus office when he opened mail bomb number 15. The explosion occurred shortly after 8.15 a.m., causing severe injuries to Gorenter's hands, right eye, and serious internal injuries. After the bomb detonated, he crawled down five flights of stairs to the street entrance of his building and stumbled to the campus infirmary, leaving pools of blood behind. Two hours later, an unidentified man called Galerner's brother, a geneticist at Yale, and stated, you are next. Later that afternoon, an editor of the New York Times received a typewritten letter postmarked June 21st from Sacramento, California. We are an anarchist group calling ourselves FC. Notice the postmark on this envelope precedes a newsworthy event that will happen about the time you receive this letter, if nothing goes wrong. This will prove that we knew about the event in advance, so our claim of responsibility is truthful. The sender also provided a unique number to be used as a code for further letters, so the media would know for sure it was from the group, 553254394. The FBI determined it was a social security number belonging to a petty criminal in Ohio who'd been in and out of prison. They theorized that the sender, the serial bomber, Ted Kaczynski, may have found a piece of paper with the social security number on it in an Ohio parking lot and used it to throw off investigators. FC stands for Freedom Club, and this reference made it clear to investigators that this was in fact the Unabomber. The initials had been punched into the metal end caps of his pipe bombs, a signature Kaczynski had been using since bomb number five. And although Ted Kaczynski tried to claim that he was an organization called the Freedom Club with more than one member, the FBI knew that it was just one nut job, basically. In Whale's book, she writes that this letter is important because, quote, the correspondence marked the first time the Unabomber communicated directly with the public. However, when I was poking around the internet, I found something that refutes that. The Anarchist Library is an online archive focusing on, guess what, anarchism and anarchist texts. It's all in the name. And they have dozens, if not hundreds, of writings by Ted Kaczynski himself. And while looking through this archive, I stumbled upon something Whale didn't mention in her book, at least that I didn't see, which is a letter Kaczynski wrote to the San Francisco Examiner in 1985, eight years before the letter to the New York Times. There's not an exact date for this letter other than December 1985, but I'm assuming it's right before the December 11th bomb that killed computer store owner Hugh Scruton, based on context clues. The first sentence reads, The bomb that crippled the right arm of a graduate student in electrical engineering and damaged a computer lab at U of Cal Berkeley last May was planted by a terrorist group called Freedom Club. So Kaczynski goes on to claim he took a couple years off, 1983 to 1984, in order to advance his bomb crafting skills into something more deadly, and that Freedom Club was embarrassed about only inflicting minor injuries. He added, We hope those computer freaks over at the university like fireworks, because they are going to see some good ones. Kaczynski described the exact measurements and materials used in the May 1985 bombing to confirm to the media and authorities that he was the legit perpetrator. The second and final page of this letter gives an incomplete indication of the Freedom Club's aims or goals, according to Ted, and are outlined with numbers 1 through 6. I'm only going to read, like, the first sentence of each paragraph so you get an idea of what Ted is communicating. 1. The aim of the Freedom Club is the complete and permanent destruction of modern industrial society in every part of the world. 2. 
the hollowness of the old revolutionary ideologies centering on socialism has become clear. Now and in the future, the thrust of rebellion will be against the industrial technological system itself. 3. No ideology or political system can get around the hard facts of life in industrial society. Even if the motives of this elite were completely unselfish, they would still have to exploit and manipulate us simply to keep the system running. Thus, the evil is in the nature of technology itself. 4. Man is a social animal meant to live in groups, but only in small groups, say up to 100 people, in which all members know one another intimately. 5. The Freedom Club is strictly anti-communist, anti-socialist, anti-leftist. This does not imply that we are, in any sense, a right-wing movement. We are apolitical. Politics only distract attention from the real issue. And I'm just going to read the last number in its entirety because it's short. 6. Don't think we are sadists or thrill-seekers, or that we have adopted terrorism lightly. Though we are young, we are not hotheads. We have become terrorists only after the most earnest consideration. End quote. I'm pretty sure this is the first communication Kaczynski has with the press while also claiming to be behind the bombings because he literally writes, quote, We have waited until now to announce ourselves because our earlier bombs were embarrassingly ineffectual. I didn't see anything about this in the newspapers at the time, so I didn't know if this was even published in the San Francisco Examiner, but the Anarchist Library is the only place I was able to find it. When I searched the keywords Freedom Club in the newspaper archives, the San Francisco Examiner returns one article from 1985, entirely unrelated. I was confused as to why the 1993 New York Times letter was being dubbed as the first time Kaczynski communicated with the public. So that's when I decided to expand the newspaper archive search into later years, and I found a reference to this 1985 letter dated June 2nd, 1995, so two years after Ted's first letter to the New York Times. The front page of the San Francisco Examiner says, Unabomber claims he told motive in 85 note, and Killer outlines aims of Freedom Club, and excerpts from letter that he says he sent to Examiner. In this article, they state the present and past examiner editors and staff members could find no evidence that the 1985 letter was received. The current editor and publisher of the examiner stated, We have no record of ever receiving such a letter. No one at the newspaper recalls such a letter. Our policy then and now is that if we receive such a letter, we would share it immediately with appropriate law enforcement agencies and consider it as a possible news story. So apparently the SF examiner was notified about this 85 letter because Ted Kaczynski had wrote another media outlet, magazine, whatever, referencing the letter, the 85 letter. So the FBI gets a hold of the letter, and I'm not sure if it was the 85 letter in its entirety, but they sent portions of it to the SF examiner. And the SF examiner editors were like, we have never read this letter or received this letter. It seems like the 85 letter just slow through the cracks or never made it, but somehow the letter in its entirety would make its way to the anarchist library. I don't know how that happened, but the SF examiner concluded at the time that this was just another prank by the Unabomber and that he'd never actually mailed in the letter. I just thought it was interesting and horrible that the Unabomber technically identified himself as the Freedom Club and announced his goals all the way back in 1985, but somehow the knowledge of this letter didn't go back to the FBI until 1995, 10 years later. And if the FBI did receive that letter in 1985, it probably would have sped up the investigation a lot and possibly saved lives. Anyways, now we're going to go back to the summer of 1993. 
On June 28th, the New York Daily News published an article titled, Male Bomber is a Nerd. He is quiet, fussy, and awkward with women, obsessed with making lists and cleaning house. And, authorities say, he is consumed with a rage that he vents by building and sending bombs to unsuspecting victims. The bomber targets people linked to academia, aviation, and computers, and centers his attacks mostly around Chicago, Salt Lake City, and San Francisco. Beyond that, the boss seemed to have no common thread. The serial bomber was back. Investigators are in a bind. To nab the phantom bomber, they must understand his motivations. Their psychological profiles indicate he is angry at some person or group and is seeking revenge. End quote. So Ted Kaczynski is officially back, and his break had been so long, the Unabomb task force had begun slowly breaking apart. Investigators figured and hoped that he was in prison for something else or had blown himself up, but unfortunately, they were wrong. Fast forward to December 10th, 1994. An advertising executive named Thomas J. Mosser for Young and Rubicam began opening a small white package on his kitchen table. The 50-year-old had recently been promoted to executive vice president of that company, Young and Rubicam, which was one of the largest ad agencies in the world at that time. This device was the Unabomber's strongest explosion yet. It was so powerful, it blew a crater into the countertop. When Mosser opened the package, his wife and children had luckily been upstairs in another room of the house because anyone who had been standing near him would have been killed. After finding her husband on the floor of the kitchen, Mosser's wife ran outside with her children screaming for help. An ambulance arrived within minutes, but Mosser was already deceased. Four months later, on April 24, 1995, the Office of the California Forestry Association, a timber industry lobbying group, received a package at the Sacramento office. It was addressed to the association's former president, who was no longer there. So his successor, 47-year-old Gilbert P. Murray, opened it instead, after another employee struggled to unwrap it. The California Forestry Association, the CFA, is not really in favor of the forests, I guess you could say. They represented the largest timber companies as well as small independent loggers. They work for the people chopping down the trees. They operated on a $1.5 million budget to basically oppose legislation that would make it more difficult for logging companies to cut down trees. For example, they successfully supported a bill in the U.S. Senate that would increase salvage logging by waiving the Endangered Species Act in national forests. So this is an organization that people who are environmentalists would definitely oppose. So just after 2 p.m. on April 24th, 1995, a construction worker just outside the office heard, quote, a big boom, like a sonic boom, a hollow crash. The heavy, shoebox-sized package had blown out the office's interior windows, two doors off its hinges, and killed Murray within moments. This was the third fatal package sent by the Unabomber, and it would also be his last. Two days later, the New York Times received its second letter from Ted Kaczynski. It contained the identifying code from previous letters and claimed to be the terrorist group FC. It also provided the first possible motive of the Unabomber. I'm not going to read the entire 1,600-plus word letter, but I will read it in part. Three passages of this letter were deleted and not printed in the New York Times by request of the FBI. This is a message from the terrorist group FC. We blew up Thomas Mosser last December because he was a Burston Marsteller executive. Among other misdeeds, Burston Marsteller helped Exxon clean up its public image after the Exxon Valdez incident. 
by the way, the incident was an oil spill which occurred on May 24th, 1989 by oil tanker Exxon Valdez in Prince William Sound, Alaska. It spilled 11 million gallons of oil into the Gulf of Alaska, resulting in one of the largest environmental disasters in U.S. history. It affected 1,300 miles of shoreline, local fish and wildlife, and local industries and communities. It killed hundreds of thousands of animals, and as of today, decades later, the community is still recovering. So now you have the context, and we can get back to the letter. All the university people whom we have attacked have been specialists in technical fields. The people we are out to get are the scientists and engineers, especially in critical fields like computer and genetics. We call ourselves anarchists because we would like, ideally, to break down all society into very small, complete, autonomous units. Regrettably, we don't see any clear road to this goal, so we leave it to the indefinite future. Our immediate goal, which we think may be attainable at some time during the next several decades, is the destruction of the worldwide industrial system. Through our bombings, we hope to promote social instability in industrial society, propagate industrial ideas, and give encouragement to those who hate the industrial system. The FBI has tried to portray these bombings as the work of an isolated nut. We won't waste our time arguing about whether we are nuts, but we certainly are not isolated. Why do we announce our goals only now, though we made our first bomb some 17 years ago? Our early bombs were too ineffectual to attract much public attention or give encouragement to those who hate the system. Since we no longer have to confine the explosive in a pipe, we are now free of limitations on the size and shape of our bombs. Clearly, we are in a position to do a great deal of damage, and it doesn't appear that the FBI is going to catch us anytime soon. The FBI is a joke. Anyhow, we are getting tired of making bombs, so we offer a bargain. We have a long article, between 29,000 and 37,000 words, that we want to have published. If you can get it published according to our requirements, we will permanently desist from terrorist activities. Our offer to desist from terrorism is subject to three qualifications. First, our promise to desist until all parts of our article or book have appeared in print. Second, if authorities should succeed in tracking us down, and an attempt is made to arrest any of us, or even try to question us in connection with the bombings, we reserve the right to use violence. Third, we reserve the right to engage in sabotage. By sabotage, we mean actions intended to destroy property without injuring human beings. End quote. In addition to writing this letter to the New York Times, Kaczynski wrote criticizing letters to three prominent doctors, two of which won a Nobel Prize in relation to genetics, as well as David Glorenter, the Yale computer scientist and previous victim. Now that the Unabomber was finally sending out his own writings, the FBI could paint a better picture of who the suspect could be. On June 27th, two months after the murder of Gilbert Murray, the San Francisco Chronicle received a threatening letter. Warning. The terrorist group FC, called Unabomber by the FBI, is planning to blow up an airliner out of Los Angeles International Airport sometime during the next six days. Security measures at LAX were drastically increased, but most flights didn't experience any delays. And within a few days, Kaczynski had mailed another letter claiming the threat was a hoax. Quote, Since the public has a short-term memory, we decided to play one last prank to remind them who we are. But no, we haven't tried to plant a bomb on an airplane, in parentheses, recently, end quote. Ted also expressed relief that bomb number three on American Airlines Flight 444 hadn't killed anyone because innocent people would have been on the plane. The idea, Ted wrote, was to kill lots of business people on the flight. Before the end of June, the Unabomber had mailed his lengthy manifesto to several media outlets, the FBI met with the New York Times and Washington Post to decide which outlet should publish it. 
They ultimately settled on the post because they had less readers and so they could keep an eye on all the like little boxes where the newspaper was sold to people and they figured that the Unabomber would probably want to pick one up and read and check for sure that his manifesto was in there. They also settled on a date. The manifesto would be printed on September 19th, 1995. Even though the manifesto hadn't been shown yet to the general public, they knew it was coming and were familiar with the earlier letters. This was a huge event everyone was following in the media, including David Kaczynski and his wife Linda. In David's book, Every Last Tie, the story of the Unabomber and his family, he details a realization that he had, or a realization, I guess, that his wife had. Quote, In the late summer of 1995, my wife, Linda Patrick, sat me down for a serious talk. She put her hand on my knee. I could hear stress in her voice. David, don't be angry with me, she began. Has it ever occurred to you, even as a remote possibility, that your brother could be the Unabomber? I knew Ted was mentally ill, plagued with afflictive emotions. I'd worried about him for years. I'd entertained unanswered questions about his estrangement from the family, but it never occurred to me that Ted was capable of violence. At first, I assumed Linda had let her imagination run away from her. She pointed out that although the manifesto had not yet been published, it was being described by media sources as a critique of modern technology. She knew my brother had an obsession with the negative effects of technology. She mentioned that one bomb had been placed at the University of California, Berkeley, where Ted was a mathematics professor, end quote. So David pushed back against the idea that his brother was the Unabomber, but promised to read the manifesto once it was published to dispel any chance and please his wife. He continued, quote, A month later, when I read the newly published manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future, I found that I couldn't in good faith tell Linda it wasn't written by my brother. Over the next two months, we read the manifesto repeatedly and made careful comparisons with letters that Ted had sent me over the years from his one-room cabin in Montana. Sometimes I thought I was projecting my worry, seeing what I feared to see, since Linda had planted a strong suggestion in my mind. At other times, I thought I might be in denial, unable to see the painful truth because I lacked the wherewithal to deal with it. Yet, the day came when I finally acknowledged to Linda that she might be right. Hun... I think there might be a 50-50 chance that Ted wrote the manifesto, end quote. In January of 1996, David got a lawyer and began the process of contacting the FBI. His lawyer allowed for him to be anonymous in this process, just in case he was wrong. After weeks of back and forth, the attorney sent one of Ted's essays so they could compare the writing to the Unabomber's manifesto. It almost didn't make it up the ranks, because people didn't see clear similarities in the writings. But eventually, it did make it there, and the authorities took it seriously. And that's when they finally got a name from the lawyer, Theodore Kaczynski, and learned his entire background. The FBI actually searched his name in their database and found he was deep in their case files. Ted Kaczynski was Unabom suspect 2416. On Valentine's Day 1996, FBI agents finally met with and interviewed David and Linda. After learning more details about Ted, agents were sent to search the old Kaczynski home in Lombard, Illinois. Wanda Kaczynski had recently sold the home and moved to an apartment, or was still in the process of moving, I'm not really sure. But inside the outdoor shed on the property, authorities found matches, traces of gunpowder, and other compounds used in the Unabomber's earliest explosives. 
By this point, a small group of task force members had already hunkered down in a motel in Lincoln, Montana, and had been watching Ted's cabin for at least a week. After finding the motel to be too noisy and distracting, they moved to two log cabins on a ridge closer to Ted's place. With guns and binoculars, they looked like hunters, quietly stalking through the woods and peered through telescopes, hoping to catch a glimpse of their suspect. After 18 days of waiting, Ted never emerged from his cabin. A forest ranger and neighbor confirmed to the agents that Ted was still there and hadn't fled. He just liked to stay in his cabin for weeks at a time. The task force in Lincoln eventually grew to 50 people, something that would soon become impossible to hide in this tiny town. Later, residents would say that they just assumed they were a company or whatever out on a hunting trip. And most people there would gossip, yes, but they wouldn't ask questions, they wouldn't poke around. And that's why Ted wanted to live there. But anyways, if they gave themselves away, Ted would surely do something to go out with a final bang, so they had to be careful. They picked a date, April 3rd, 1996. If Ted wasn't going to come out, they were going to have to go in. This is how the New York Times described that day the following month. They formed a great circle, moving down the hillside and up the muddy road. As they drew near, they came across a shed where the carcasses of several animals had been dressed and hung out to dry. Nearer still, a plot of ground lay cleared for a garden by a tall wire fence to keep out the deer. A ring of cold stones marked a campfire cookery. The cabin, with a steep roof of green tar paper, was a crude wooden shack, its reddish-brown walls faded by many winters, a rustic coarseness against the gnarled bark of the woods. It was impossible to see in. Two small windows were set high up to catch the light, but keep out prying eyes. A jumble of bottles and cans lay heaped like a medieval midden beside the cabin door. The door itself was hinged and fitted with a hasp for a padlock, useful for locking up when the mountain man was away. But he was here now, silent inside, his door secured by a deadbolt. They used a little ruse. Mr. Gehring, Ted's neighbor, by the way, shouted something about the ranger needing help to fix the line between their adjoining properties. The door opened. A shaggy man stepped out. They took his arms from both sides. Ted, one of them said. We need to talk. A search of Ted's cabin revealed bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal entries, details of bomb-making experiments, descriptions of his crimes, and an original copy of the Unabomber's manifesto. Authorities also found a live bomb, which they claim was ready for mailing. After 18 years and over $50 million in funds, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, was no longer a threat. In June, a federal grand jury indicted him on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs. David Kaczynski received the $1 million reward for his brother's arrest. He later donated all this money, minus his family's legal fees, to the families of Ted's victims. Two years later, Ted attempted to hang himself with a pair of underwear after his request for new lawyers was rejected. Ted didn't want his defense to argue insanity so he could avoid the death penalty. A psychiatrist concluded that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, while another suggested that he wasn't psychotic but had some sort of personality disorder in that realm. Ted rejected this diagnosis. Prosecutors were seeking the death penalty, but on January 22, 1998, he pleaded guilty to all the charges in exchange for life imprisonment without parole. In 2011, items and writings from Ted's cabin were auctioned off to pay Kaczynski's victims, raising $211,000. Eight years later, Kaczynski's cabin was transported to the FBI museum after being displayed in a DC museum for years. It's still there today.
and you've probably seen pictures circulating of it online. I posted one. In December of 2021, at the age of 79, Kaczynski was diagnosed with late-stage cancer. Two years later, at 12.23 a.m. on June 10, 2023, he was found unresponsive in his cell. Reports later stated that Kaczynski had committed suicide, but an autopsy has yet to be completed, and the circumstances of his suicide are unknown. Even as I'm recording this two weeks later, we still do not know the circumstances surrounding Ted Kaczynski's suicide. But considering his father also received a diagnosis of late-stage cancer in 1990 and ultimately took his life, it seemed like Ted Kaczynski was just repeating that pattern and decided to take his own life, possibly because of that, maybe something else, at the age of 81. And I will be honest, when I first heard news of Ted Kaczynski committing suicide, I was so confused because I thought he had already died. I mean, the man was 81 years old. Not a lot of people live to be that old, especially in a federal prison. Thank you so much for listening, and special shout out to Iz, I-Z, for becoming a Patreon member this week. If you want to hear more stuff about the Unabomber from me, there is bonus stuff on the Patreon. There's always a link in the description. That's it for this week's episode. Don't forget to tune in next Thursday for another one, and I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.